Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, everyone, to Rock M Nation Podcast. We are back now for another episode of Dive Cuts. Uh, I believe we're on episode 26 now. Um, the college basketball season is officially wrapped. Uh, Baylor, the, uh, the, the the Baptists of Baylor, are your, your new national champion. Um, unseating the uh, the. the, the two-year run of the Virginia Cavaliers. So uh, with me as always is Matt, uh, Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how are you? I'm well. Uh, it's so great that a plucky upstart that you know has such a clean history and an unblemished past has finally won the NCAA tournament. Um, couldn't be happier for that upstanding group and upstanding institution <laughs> known as Baylor University. Um which I hate even being that sarcastic because I'm sure Scott Drew's very nice and all the guys on the team are very nice. It's just a shame that they happen to uh, be the face and the marketing vehicle for that university. So, uh, but we can't get what we want all the time. So I really enjoy watching Baylor play basketball. Like that is a really really fun team. But at at the same time, it, it is kind of like one of those things where it's like, man, it's it's Baylor, you know, like. And I realize, yeah, I mean, the, the Drew family has a, a really great reputation of being good people, uh, being very down to earth. Um, I believe, uh, if I'm digging into the archives correctly here, Homer is a Webster Groves graduate. Um, so uh, 
there's definitely a, a, a neat little local tie there. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, for, there are certain aspects where it's, like, it, it is kind of cool to see, like, the, the arc of the storyline of, you know, basically going from uh, one coach um, covering up murder uh, to essentially the uh, the guy who took over for him building the program into a national championship team. And, and Baylor's, like, Baylor's been kind of back for a while. Like, they've been a, what would you say, like, yeah, like a top 25, 30 program over the last probably, you know, 10 or 12 years. Like, he, he once they kind of got out of, like, their, their sanctions and their punishments, um, I think he, he, he built them up pretty quickly. And they were always good. Um, you know, obviously, I don't think you really count on having the kind of team that they've had the last two years where, you know, I think very clearly there were two runaway teams. And we've kind of been talking about Baylor and, and Gonzaga all year. Um, and it, it it looked to me, and I know like there's going to be a lot of people that maybe are going to, uh, I guess, talk down a little bit about Gonzaga with, with how they kind of got throttled a bit. But I thought like Baylor came out very ready to play, and Gonzaga just did not look like themselves. And part of that, I mean, is Baylor's doing, and you definitely want to give them credit. Um but I think if you kind of rewind things and, and you play this game uh, at a different start time and a different night, uh, I, I definitely think this is a lot more of a toss-up than, than the, uh, the game the other night may have, uh, may have displayed. I don't know about if, if you would agree with that, but uh, I, I certainly think that I, I don't think you can put any kind of asterisk next to Gonzaga. I mean, they were a, a legitimately good team all year beat a lot of really good teams. I mean, they throttled USC. And USC is good. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think the hard part is how much do you want to... I hate the narrative of, you know, coming off of a game they were just spent from playing UCLA. I don't think they were spent physically playing five extra minutes against UCLA. And, and you know, psychologically, I don't want to say that they were completely you know, sort of a, you know, a drifter in a little bit of a hangover because if you've read anything about this team and sort of understand what its focus has been, it, you know, they felt like they were deprived of a chance a year ago because of the tournament's cancellation to win a national title. That's what's sort of been their lodestar all year. I just think it was Baylor came out and if you watch Baylor, their on-ball defense and the way they defend and the way they rotate and, and how, you know, crisp they are at closing down shooters and, and at, you know, helping down all the things that you want to see, just good sound defense. They're good at that all the time, but there was just a little extra edge last night and Gonzaga could have very well been locked in and Baylor's edge was just that much better. Um, you could definitely tell that I think Baylor showed up with a little bit more um, oomph in those first couple of minutes, yeah. but I, you know, after the first, you know, six or seven minutes, I thought, you know, if you looked at a possession by possession basis or in terms of efficiency, um, Gonzaga did what it needed to do. It could just never, once you get down by 10, 12 points to Baylor, no matter how good you are, digging out from that's going to be a tough task. And then inevitably, they're going to have another spurt in there. They had one with about 12 minutes left in the second half, and that pretty much sewed it up. I just thought, 
Like, you don't want to say the game was decided in the first six or seven minutes, but I think it was It really kind of was. I mean... Uh, yeah, but... I think if you look at... Uh, I mean, for, for one thing, like, I fully believe that if, if Baylor had not gone on COVID pause, that they very likely would have entered that game undefeated as well. Undefeated I mean, as like, well. Like, yeah. that team, that the way that they were playing, and really, you know, against uh, Houston the night before as well, um, they were playing like the Baylor team that we saw earlier this year. And yeah. and when they're making shots and they're making threes uh, and, and the way that they defend, um, I, I think that they're just... Uh, they were always every bit as good as Gonzaga. Uh, I think the the clear difference to me is like the difference in athleticism. Um, and you start like with guys not named Jalen Suggs on the perimeter for right, right. Gonzaga. Suggs is probably you know, and even like Yayi is is a, a terrific player, but he's he's not like a he's not an explosively quick guy in, in the way that uh, that Davion Mitchell. Or uh, or Jared Butler are like those guys are, you know, and then and then you like as much as as wonderfully skilled as Drew Timmy is. I mean, he is just a phenomenal player to watch. Like he's just he's not an explosive athletic guy. And and then you know Baylor's like, all right, we're just going to put you in ball screens, and that's just that's bad news, um, you know. And then you've got I always for, uh, screw up uh, Jonathan's last name, but. Um, you got him, and then uh, Bamba, and the, I, mean, uh, I thought and the, the and the rebounding too was just absurd. I think they took like six, yeah. sixteen more shots or something like that. Yeah, they out rebounded him by eleven and had a turnover margin of plus five, or or so that was really the difference. Like I went and looked at it today. There's a group that does like SQI shot quality index for college basketball which basically measures your shot quality can like the quality of your shots from certain spots on the floor compared to the body of work for the entire sport the shot quality for both teams is a draw like if you look at the points per shot value gonzaga was better in points per mm-hmm. shot they just took 16 less yeah. of them and when that happens you you lose the game so i thought that that was just the thing they just they bled out too many possessions in this game, and if you and credit to Baylor because Baylor forced turnovers, they got on the glass and they converted three pointers early on when they needed to, and they put you know the Zags in a position where they were going to have to either hope Baylor just went frighteningly cold. Maybe there was an injury or something that would have happened or foul trouble. And I think that's when they made the push was in the second half when Baylor's bigs got in foul trouble. That was kind of the moment where you thought, okay, the door's cracked. Then they commit three turnovers and four possessions. Baylor comes down, stretches it out to 16, and it's over. They they needed everything to go right for the final 33 minutes. And against a team of Baylor's caliber, even if you're Gonzaga, that's just... It's asking a lot. That's way too heavy of a lift, so... Um, like you watch it and it all sort of makes sense. I think it was just those first seven minutes were just such a, a square punch to the jaw that it was, you know, I, I even thought Gonzaga did a good job sort of recovering there. It was just too big. Yeah, of a hole, I mean, even so. just to get it down, I think 10 at halftime, I thought was like they, they, yeah, Miracle. they put themselves in a really like as good of a position considering like that first 
you know, five, six, seven minutes. It was just brutal. Um, yeah. But this is not a, a Baylor pod or a Gonzaga pod, uh, barely even a college basketball pod. Um, we are a whiskey and Mizzou basketball pod. Um, so while the Final Four was going on and while uh, one of the greatest college basketball games uh, that I've ever watched was that that UCLA and, and Gonzaga game was just absurdly great. Um, Missouri was making moves. Filling holes, adding bodies. So just just grabbing dudes out of the portal. Because time has no meeting. Completing <laughs> trades that were started a week earlier. So because time has no meeting anymore, Matt, uh I I'm failing to remember exactly where we were as far as guys who had left the team or entered the portal uh, by last week. I'm pretty sure we had gotten to everybody. Uh, Uh, We had gotten, I think, yeah, we had gotten to everybody. Um, The last guy was was, was Torrance? Yeah, it was Torrance. I'm pulling up. This is why we made the the, uh, story. (laughs) List <laughs> on the front of the page because to keep, to keep, keep it 20... straight. Yeah, uh, just so we have a timeline of when all this stuff happened. But yeah, they had uh, gotten to Torrance. We were at five openings, and realistically, only one of those was in Xavier Pinson was probably one that you would have penciled in as a as a bona fide contributor uh, going to next season. Um, I know people are going to say. I still am hesitant to even call the Mark Smith transfer a transfer, but under the current circumstances it is. Uh, when we got to last Friday, we were at... Uh, yeah, last Friday was busy. Uh, Torrance Watson, on March 31, entered the transfer portal. Uh, then on midday on April 2, last Friday, Brandon McKissick, spurned Missouri uh, for Florida. And then later that night, uh, Dewan Gordon uh, was the player to be named later that came through the now portal. Now you're already pronouncing it wrong. What is Deshwan. It? Deshwan. I'm sorry, Deshwan. Deshwan Gordon came through the tr- in another um, Purdue <laughs> to Purdue uh, transaction. Conzo went and got a former, got Amari Davis, who was a, who played for a former Purdue teammate in Link Darner, and then went and got Deshawn Gordon, who played for his, an assistant coach who coached him at Purdue and a former colleague in Bruce Weber. Man, the Purdue Alumni Network is certainly beneficial. Compl- completed that Mark that Smith alum- trade as, uh, as yeah. like, 90,000 people made that joke on Twitter. Um, and of course, you yeah, know, like yeah. everybody kind of makes it at the same time. So I'm not like, I don't think anyone was really ripping anyone else off. But it's just sort of no, funny. Was, like everyone's just like, oh, it's the player to be named later in the Mark Smith trade. It's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next day on Saturday around 3 or 4 p.m. my time, 2 or 3 in Columbia, uh, Ball State. Uh, Guard Jerron Coleman. Bug. Uh, picked the Tigers. Boogie! Picked the Tigers. Um, and that that's, I think, where we stand right now. There are three new members who have filled five open spots. And the portal just keeps filling. <laughs> so, 
Ugh, it does not stop. So, uh, so that is well, where we so let's are. talk about the roster really quickly. Um, as those guys kind of come in and we can kind of get the, into each individual player. Um, so we are at two open spots. Uh, I think at this point it's probably fair to say that Missouri would like to fill both of those spots. Um, it's interesting when you kind of look at, so each of the three guys that are coming in are bringing kind of like different skill sets. Like, you know, Coleman is a little bit more of a, uh, a, a bigger point guard. He's, he's a more of a ball handler. Uh, I, I would kind of call him a combo guard. Uh, I think, Davis is a guy who's more naturally uh, off the ball, um, and and really so is is uh, is Gordon. So um, I think we've kind of jokingly referred to Gordon as like athletic Javon, <laughs> um, because he does a lot of the things that Javon Pickett does. Um, but if you watch him play, he's just a more athletic version of uh, Javon Pickett. So uh, I I think that's a good sort of basis to kind of start there. I still think they need probably one guy who can handle the ball and one big, um, certainly the interior. And I don't necessarily think you need like a, you know, Jeremiah Tillman coming back. You don't need like a six eleven post guy. Uh, you just need somebody who can play some minutes at the five. Um, I think clearly the staff wants to target, uh, Christian Bishop, who is a former, uh, Lee Summit West? Is that where you went? Lee Summit West? Um, Lee Summit West product, and he committed to Creighton. I believe he was the class of 2018. Um, and that was that was kind of like right in the, the summer where Konza was coming in. I don't think that recruiting or recruitment really ever fully picked up or gained traction. Um and at the time, you know, there were several other guys that were kind of already on the roster that you probably were kind of factoring into that uh, position and uh, ended up not quite working out. Um, but, I, you know, I think he's a guy who certainly Missouri would like to have. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I think the, uh, the rumors have him kind of most likely to land in, uh, in Lawrence at Kansas. Um, but the other, the other guy that I, I think we, we all know and, and believe that Mizzou is still targeting is, uh, is Tamar Bates. Um, the big news is, you know, Shaka taking the job at Marquette, uh, both Tamar Bates and David Joplin is another, um, you know, former Missouri target and a guy that, you know, Missouri, I think was in his top five or six before he committed to Texas. Um, so two guys that I think, you know, Conzo would really like to have and uh and Bates to me is is very clearly the guy that I think the staff would bend over backwards to make sure they had room for um if they still had a spot and Joplin's like yeah you know what like let's do it I think they would take him but I don't think he's anywhere near uh the we want this guy on our roster in the same way that Tamar is yeah and I, I think just situationally Joplin's in a different place because he is a Milwaukee native. Yeah, uh, there had always been the there had always been the question of why Marquette did not pursue him as ardently as you might have expected. Uh, and now Shaka's there, 
uh, so he can stay home, still play for the coach that he really likes. Uh, that, to me, seems like the more logical... It does seem like a very uh, natural fit. Uh, I think, naturally, they're going to kind of open it up and they're going to hear pitches and they're going to go through it. But if I had to... Just my sense early on is that I think it, it's going to be, hey, we'll we'll listen a little bit, but if he can you know, play for Shaka, stay home, have all that happen, I think that can that's probably the more natural one. I think the interesting thing will be with Bates... There, because he had mentioned a couple of times, and I think everyone is sort of aware of the sort of these factors by now. But we'll just run through them quickly again. One, there was a relationship with Shaka. He really liked Shaka, but he wanted to play. He said publicly for a black head coach. Um, Shaka obviously fills that. Uh, but then there, he had mentioned like Texas was going to try and help him with name, image, and likeness related matters. Uh, if he got down there, he felt Texas had a good infrastructure for that. Um, so if Shaka's gone now, that main allure is there. The question is how much does the Texas brand still hold there? I think if you watch Tamar Bates play basketball, there's little doubt that Chris Beard and him would be simpatico. <laughs> um, just, uh, if you watch any of the Geico Nationals to watch Tamar defend, to watch Tamar defend is to make him think, yeah, that guy could be uh, pretty handy for Chris Beard to have in the new regime there. But we'll see how that goes, or what that, inf- or sort of what course that well, takes. As, as Beard tries to remake his no middle defense without the architect of the no middle. Yeah, uh, who is uh, staying there? But Chris Beard has now plucked two sitting head coaches from UTEP and U- University of Texas, Arlington for his and, staff, and, and Jaron uh, Howard, ran, and ra- and rated. Uh, Kansas to bring Jaron Howard back to Texas. And uh, his own uh, ace recruiter, who is uh, uh, Malagi. Yeah, Ulrich yeah. Malagi. So, so he's uh, got like, I'm I'm wondering if one of those sitting head coaches didn't just uh, give up their, their head coaching job for a Dobo position. Like, <laughs> try to try to figure out who, that, who's not going on the road. Resources. When Texas can pay, it's Dobo as much as... Uh, a head coaching position at a mid-major. Yeah, well, and and that's that, already that's already kind of been going around on on Twitter. Is a lot of uh, reporters been saying like the, the money that Texas is throwing around is getting ridiculous. So, but yeah, so Rodney Terry was at UTEP. Uh, Chris Ogden. Yeah, Chris um, Ogden was at University of Texas. I, so the, uh, that always that always kind of uh, mixes me up a bit because Chris Ogden was a basketball player who played at Webster in the mid nineteen eighties. Uh, who then went on to play at Murray State. He was a really, really great high school basketball player. Played with uh, Sam Ivey um, and and that team and a, a few other uh, high-level D1 guys. That was like right before my brother got there. So this is when I was but a young chap. Webster was, uh, I think, 28-2 and two his senior year um, and lost to Craig Upchurch, who went on to play at, at Houston. All this is before my time. I was but a wee boy back. I was but a wee toddler. Um, yeah, that's that's like some 1985, I think 85? Yeah, a- I was... 86, that, maybe? Matt was, Matt, Matt was an infant during this period. Uh, <laughs> but the, the question for Bates is going to be, where does Texas figure in if they still do? Um, His, it, it's been reported that... that the, it's been reported that, you know... The relationship was with Shaka. Yeah. Um, 
And that and so it'll be interesting to see. Jai Lucas how... is now at Kentucky, and Kentucky has expressed interest. I think Jai, uh, Jai Lucas was the uh, like the lead assistant on it, but I mean, clearly, I mean, Shock is like the guy who. Yeah, Closes. he's he he's so. he's the reason a lot of those guys end up there. So, yeah, I'd say that it'll be interesting, like over the next few weeks, to sort of see what materializes. I, from all reports, it appears people believe that Missouri is going to be right in the thick of it, and uh, and are expected to kind of be there at the end. Um, whether or not that means that they they land their guy is a good question, but. Um, but certainly, I, I like. I think what you are looking at is you're looking at, you know, the guy that that Conzo wanted from the jump is sort of back available, and he's he's going to make every effort he can to get him in the fold. Yeah. So that, that I think that's kind of where you move now. Um, I, to me, I think the as much as Bates is a priority and atop the board, just as a wish list, the the primary need now is to find. Just a usable big in the front court. Uh, I think that that's, it doesn't, you know, you and I have been a broken record on this and that we don't think it needs to be, you know, a headliner. It just needs to be somebody who can reliably guard the post, you know, solid and help defense. I mean, you'd, you'd can, love somebody, can rebound. you'd love somebody like, you know, like Liam, Robert, or Liam Robbins at, uh, who yeah. just announced it today, I think, that he is transferring from Minnesota. Yeah. Um, 6'11", big, can stretch the floor, uh, very skilled, good defensively. You'd love it if that's the guy. But honestly, if they could just find like a strong 6'7", dude who can defend and rebound, uh, just, just to yep. kind of buy time for uh, for Yaya and uh, you know and, and Trevin, who I think will, might even see some minutes at the 5 over his career, um, I think that's what your, your end goal is. Yeah. Uh, so they've got obviously a couple more weeks. I think the biggest difference is now when, you know, Bates committed, you know, we hadn't quite seen the exodus, you know, really ramp up. And then I think there were people that were sort of looking around going, we're seeing a lot of bodies go out here, not a lot of bodies coming in. I think midday Friday, a lot of people were probably, uh, jumpy given that McKissick, uh, picked Florida and you just sort of wondered what's going to happen. And then in the next 24 hours, they fill two spots and, you know, Tamar Bates, team wraps up on Saturday. They get knocked out of the Geico nationals and David Joplin decommits. And suddenly you're there on Saturday afternoon and, you know, Tamar Bates, season is done. David Joplin's come back on the market, you know, uh, Bishop is available and you've filled three of your spots. So I, I think that's just how fast and how swiftly things can change in this sort of market. And I think it's why I'm not reading any top 25, way too early top 25 today, because we have no clue what, like in the span of 24 hours, Missouri can be staring down four openings and not a lot of guys imminently committing. And then you can, by the end of the weekend, you know, you and I were sort of talking about, all right, now you just load up and you focus on, two or three primary guys to round out the roster. Like that's how swiftly just circumstances can change here. But even then, I don't think you and I can sit here and say, okay, with two spots left, where does this team fit into the SEC picture? Because so many other rosters are in flux right now. So it's, 
it's it's just a weird time to sort of see you know the migration of players to see how drastically rosters are being overhauled and not really have like a frame of reference for where that sits so uh certainly uh a time where i think caution and sort of just patience is still warranted yeah and i i think with everything that's sort of been happening and the and the, the pace uh you know this is something that could stretch all the way into june before you sort of have a, a clear idea of what everyone's roster is going to look like um and you know another thing that we were kind of talking you know like you, you sort of look at kentucky's board right now um you know and they have a good recruiting class coming in but it's not like kentucky good it's it's like it's like the kind of class that you know you'd maybe look at uh you know at auburn and be like oh that's a good that's a good recruiting class um so that's what they've got. Then they've got like Kellen Grady. Uh, you know they're pursuing Marcus Carr, um, who are by all means like, and this is kind of at the point I was making with you when we were kind of talking about it. Like, by all means, they're really good college players. But there's a difference between running out Marcus Carr and Kellen Grady, two guys who are not going to be first round draft picks, and running out guys who are going to be first round draft picks. You know, like if you're running out Tyler Harrow or, and Keldon Johnson, or if you're running out, um, you know, De'Aaron Fox, if you're running out, you know, guys like that versus Marcus Carr and Kellen Grady, like, yeah, I mean, Kentucky, if they if they have those guys, and I think they'll be better than they were this year, but I don't think it, it cements them at the top of the league the way that uh, I think they're kind of used to being. And, and, and then, you, like we were talking about Florida, um, as much as you and I both like McKissick and, and the things that he can do, like I was kind of thinking he'd be a, you know, secondary ball handler, you know, defend hard, shoot some threes, but he's, he's not like a guy who's going to come in and, and change the direction of your program. So Florida as a program is kind of going through it. Uh, they're dealing with a lot of roster turnover. Um, we still don't really know what's going to happen with LSU. Like there's, there's still so many unknowns uh, at this point of, you know, the off season that anybody kind of making these lists is just really out of their mind. And I think we're at the point where you're probably, I don't know, like six weeks away from really starting to, to get a better idea of, of what the SEC is going to look like. Yeah, and we haven't even considered NBA draft decisions at this point and what that's going to look like. And are guys going to ride it out? Or I, Last year, I think people kind of hung in to see when it was going to be because the calendar kept shifting. Um, I could see some guys having a little bit more clarity this year and kind of going in with both feet. But you, you look at the top recruiting classes in the conference right now, at least in terms of average recruit, far and away Bama right now is – Probably the the, well, they just the top got a class top thirty or they forty com- center too. Yeah, they got Char- Charles Bediaco committed today. Kentucky's got three commits. Um, uh, average rating of those guys is ninety nine point oh nine. So they've got three good dudes coming in. They've added uh, Kellen Grady. The question will be if they add Marcus Carr and add. Uh, I think they're in good position. Supposedly trying to reel in Walker Kessler, a former five star who is moved on from uh, North Carolina uh, before Roy Williams uh, announced his retirement. 
then you have some classes like Auburn and Tennessee are both around 98.6 for their average recruiting ring, but they've each got two commits in this class. And then you got a lot of teams between like 90 and 92, and Missouri's squarely in there. So outside of like three or four teams at the top, there's about six or seven in the middle who are all kind of recruiting from the same caliber of player, all with three to five commitments. So not like a class where I think you, not a year where you're seeing like clear tiers delineated. And I think that speaks to what coaches have done this year, which is coaches banked yeah. on the portal in a year where you could not go out and you really couldn't scout or you couldn't like make plays on guys or go, you know, firmly evaluate guys, you know, you were going to wait it out and you're going to see what's going to happen in the portal. So I think, that's what makes me skeptical here is like, we know Tennessee has Kennedy Chandler. We know that Kentucky's going to have some talent. We know that Alabama's bringing in JD Davidson and bringing Charles Bediaco. There's some guys coming into this league that are going to be good, but I don't know if it's the same kind of depth of talent that we saw with this class in 2020. I thought we had some depth there, but in a climate where guys are really starting to, you know, wait on the portal and try and do that. I just don't know what the rosters are going to look like. And, Realistically, if you're taking up transfers, it's even murkier because what we know about up transfers, which are we tend to see, you know, dips in minutes, we tend to see dips in efficiency, and we tend yeah, to see so, dips. In so sport. who hits? Who so, doesn't? I mean, it's, it's such a key factor. You know, like I think there's a lot of people that have a lot of positivity about, uh, you know, Boog Coleman, uh, Jaron Boogie Coleman. Um, you know, because of his size and his ability to sort of shoot threes, um, you know, so there's there's some positivity there, you know. But at the same time, he's making the transition uh, from a Ball State team that was just okay in the MAC. I mean, they weren't very good. They had a lot yeah, of COVID I mean, they, issues, they, but I mean, a lot of a lot of teams at the lower levels are dealing with all kinds of stuff. And, and Coleman's a yeah. guy who started off the season, you know, sideline because of a, a, you know, a foot injury. And, um, and so when, when you sort of are talking about, well, making the jump, even though you like in, being Missouri fans, you kind of are in a vacuum and you look at these guys and like, Hey, like these, these three players kind of solve a lot of what we're looking for, uh, you know, for what you could bring into this class. And yet you kind of, then you look and see, okay, well, this is what Ole Miss has done. And this is what Mississippi state has done. And they're also kind of banking on guys who were, um, were better, (laughs) Um, <laughs> at the lower level, and maybe they turn into like a Jarkel Joiner. Like I was as skeptical as anybody on Jarkel Joiner, and he turned into a really terif- uh, a terrific addition for them. Um, you know, so you look around the league, and, and some of those guys who are up transferring are gonna are gonna be the right fit, and some guys aren't. Yeah, like we thought, EJ Anasicki and Kevin Marfo were gonna be big time. We're gonna be really really helpful, and they were sort of meh. I thought Jordan Bruner was an okay rostered addition for Alabama, but it wasn't nearly as important as Alex Reese was. And when Bruner committed, it was treated as like, oh, yeah. man, this is a coup. And, you know, we can kind of work back to Missouri guys this way. You know, I was looking through Teron Coleman's numbers, and, you know, you, you pull up and you look at how he played against Kim Palm teams. There was a jump this year to 16 points per game. 
you know, against Kim Pom top 100 teams from 12 a year ago. And you might think, oh man, that's insane. That's, that's a major, major jump. Well, he had one 33 point game near the end of his time with, I think in the last game of the season uh, for them. Toledo, right? Against Toledo. Skewed his scoring (laughs) average by four points. Stripped that game out. He's basically the same scoring, basically the same efficiency. All the underlying metrics were basically the same from his freshman year. And so you look at that and you sort of go, oh, okay. But then you also, as you mentioned, sort of said, he was coming off a broken foot and was not himself until six or seven games yeah, back. So he missed, the, what was it, the first so, 10 games? And then... First 10 games was on a minutes restriction for the first yeah, four games had... back. Was in foul trouble for one, and then he like went off against, I think, Kent State or somebody. So it was five or six games back before he started to look anywhere close yeah. to normal. So you're, real, so you're evaluating for them like six to seven games in a year where they had COVID pause overlapping that. So anyone who's like looking at Coleman's sophomore year, that's a Rorschach test. You can look at that any <laughs> number of ways and be like, he went nuts down the stretch. Okay, yeah, that's good. But the teams he was going nuts against were not the best. Like they would not, they weren't highly rated in Kimpom. But then you and I have talked about how Kimpom's wonky this year because it's. So I think like you have this is where a year where you've really got to go, look at film, and you've I think you've almost got to go back and look at freshman year numbers, for a guy like him and Davis. You've got to look at a full season where you've got the full set of data there, and, and really evaluate it. I I think Coleman's got a lot of really really terrific facets to his game. I think he's he's a guy who's not hurried. I think he gets where he wants to go. I think he can make smart reads out of ball screens. He does not explode into his jumper, but man, the top end of that jumper is just pure. He's got a lot of he's got a nice little uh kind of trio of ball fakes he can use in the lane on guys who close he's, down yeah, drives. He's crafty. He's crafty. Defensively in ball screens he can be a mess. Off the ball, sometimes he will just lose track of shooters. That just flat out lose track of them. So, like, you go back and you watch the tape and you look at the numbers and you go, there's some pieces here. And, you know, he played for a good program here in Indianapolis at Cathedral and a good AAU program. But I think anyone who's, like, looking at Jerron Coleman and saying this is a plug-and-play solution, and I'm not trying to denigrate Jerron Coleman. I think it's a good pickup. I just think... You, once you really dig in and look at the film and you look at the context behind those numbers, we're not going to know until he takes the floor next, no, you know, this coming November about what he actually is and what he can bring to the table. And the same goes for Amari Davis, a guy who I, I've grown on as a player. I think he's just a, you know, a crafty guy in the middle of the floor. I think he's, you know, he's, he's got good skills on the defensive end. I think he can play in gaps. He rebounds pretty well for his size, but you know he's still kind of a slight frame guy. And you know, is he going to be able to hold up a little bit defensively? We'll see. Um, you know, Deshwan, uh this is going to sound mean. I don't know if he should dribble the basketball <laughs> offensively. Uh, just his bone. He makes his living as a cutter, rebounding occasionally coming off screen to his left and knocking down a jumper 
and maybe one out of every four times he gets an open spot up, he'll knock it down. But as a ball handler, his offensive efficiency just falls to the floor. So, like, I, I agree. I think, you know, you can, the positive case, you can say you've got a low usage, high efficiency guy who can defend a little bit. You get a guy who's crafty off ball screens and can kind of make plays in the mid range. And we got a jumbo sized point guard who can see over the top of the defense, makes makes the simple read as well as some, you know, really, really tough ones, and has a pure jumper. Flip side, not quite sure how good defensively he either of those two guards are, and the other guy is probably not anyone you want handling the ball. Like that that's so I defy anyone to look at the roster right now and tell me that, like, yeah, this has been patched over. I think it's certainly intriguing though. And it's and it's gonna be fun to like look at this group moving forward, but sitting here right now, I just I have no clue what how anyone can say definitively that yes, Missouri has solved its problems here or eh, I don't know, because it's it's just a black box. Yeah, right so I think like that's the you know, the the takeaway is is like a hopeful skepticism. Um, you know, anytime you're dealing with guys who are transferring up, there's always gonna be uh, f- folks who point to you know Cash and Drew as as exact evidence why this is going to work, and you know maybe gloss over all the other guys that didn't. <laughs> um, you know, and and again, like I I think that, and I I wrote about this. I I think that the individual pieces make a lot of sense when you put them together, and I think one of the things that I've liked about. Uh, about Conzo's approach to recruiting is when he can't get the like the one guy that he thinks can can do the things that he wants, he goes and he finds the pieces that can do all the things that he wants. Um, you know, so so maybe Coleman isn't, uh, you know, quite the driver, the attacker, the you know, the high flyer, but he's got that a little bit more in Davis and and Gordon. Um, you know, neither of those guys are known for their three point shooting prowess, but that's that's what. Coleman is is a little bit better at so you can see him trying to kind of piece these things together to at least approach it in a way that is going to you know provide uh different looks offensively um and I think that can be valuable uh and then also it it looks like he is kind of committing to this idea of playing with more pace um which I mean Thank the Lord, Matt. It's just like, <laughs> it, it, like I I get that that college coaches really want to control things, and I get that. Um, I, I I actually think that one of the main reasons why uh, these these transfers are kind of out of control, and there are so many coaches that are taking guys at lower levels who are older, is because it, it raises the floor for them. Um, they're able to control that a little bit more than than with a maybe a higher ceiling riskier freshman um you know and so it's it's easier to sort of look at a guy who's been playing in the summit or the mac uh and and say like well let's see if we can get him to scale up and, and at worst we have somebody who's you know replacement level um you know versus just as an example like someone like you know sean Dur gordon who you know i think i am I, I think he's a guy that has a very high ceiling. 
but but coming in, like we're, we don't know what we're going to get, and and he's going to have a lot of games where he looks just an absolute mess, and maybe some games where he looks awesome, and it's just like and and I think like that's what the coaches try to control when they when they're taking more of these, uh, you know, these transfers is they're they're just trying to kind of set the floor a little bit more, uh, and I think all three of those guys are 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 a good sort of boundary on what Missouri can be as a basketball team next year. Um, and that boundary is like at least decent. Um, on the high end, you're, you're I think you're talking, um, you know, possible NCAA tournament team, depending on how they kind of are able to utilize their last two spots. Um, but I mean, that, that's kind of how I look at it. I don't know if... I, I just... From when you go and you watch the film of these guys, the athleticism and like some of the measurables, like if you put on a tape of Amari Davis, he is very clearly 6'2, 6'3, very slight frame, you know, not the bounciest guy in the world, but his ability to make plays with his handle off the bounce going left is phenomenal. Like he's just super skilled doing that. He's got just. You know, I wrote about this week. You watch just the number of different release points and how he's able to use his body, manip, and have the you know sort of comfort off the floor to get the ball to the rim. That that's something that is a skill level that he's sort of drilled on there. You know, you watch Coleman play. You know, he's unhurried, but you know if he gets cut off, he's got ball fakes. He's crafty. He's able to create space a lot like Drew Smith was. They've developed a certain skill set to work around the flaws that I think a lot of times fans look at and say, you know, Jerron Coleman had to sit out a year because he was he had to get he had to lose weight. You know, he still looks soft in his frame at times, but you know, he developed a skill set to become an effective driver. You know, Amari Davis, not the most bulky or athletic guy, had to develop a skill set to be a rim finisher and to, you know, ease pressure on his mid range jumper. No, Deshawn Gordon, you know, is a high-flying guy who may not have the most skill in the world, but he's figured out that the path to minutes is defense, rebounding, and cutting. There are guys who I think who have a sense of themselves and what they provide, and that can be something that you can plug in, and they're used to having to take on a role and what you have to do at the college level. So even if it's not about control, it's you're getting guys who have a sense of themselves, a sense of their game, and you can at least give them roles and sort of use that as cover while you, while guys like Anton Brookshire, you know, Trevin Brazil or Sean Dewar Gordon kind of figure things out. And I, and I think that's the biggest thing right now is you're, you're, you're taking in some known skill, even if you're having to sacrifice maybe some measurables to let your high upside guys have time to make that sort of transition. So I think it's, we'll see if it works. Um, again, there's, so much more that has to happen in the portal in terms of roster set. But but I sort of like the theory of the case they're going with here. Um, we'll see if it pans out, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the approach, too. Um, so far, I, I and I haven't quite gotten into as much film as I've wanted to. There's kind of been a lot going on. Um, I usually will get into that more in the offseason, but I think uh, so far, so good. Um, I think it's time for us to kind of wrap this up we're actually trying to kind of keep this shorter um it is uh it is tuesday night and uh and the the plan now is that we are going to go to our off season every two weeks um 
so maybe we'll look into bringing some guests on. We'll we'll do some uh, some different discussions. It's uh, it's a whole off season of of Mizzou basketball as Kamsa Martin is going into an unprecedented fifth year as a head coach. Man, it's it's unbelievable to some people that that Kamsa Martin stuck around. <laughs> Now some people would like him to not stick around. So, yeah. So, so some people are inherently unhappy, folks. And, um, but uh, but yeah. So it, I I think that this off season is going to be a really interesting one. Um, the class twenty twenty two recruiting will be on top of that. Uh, if you haven't, um, please make your way over to Rockham Nation and make sure you read uh, Matt's sort of feature article on Amari Davis. I thought it was really well done. Um, very informative. I, I, it seems to be pretty popular so far. So I'd imagine most of the folks that are listening to this probably already read it. But if you didn't, uh, go read it. And if you already read it, well, go read it again. Um, so yeah. So next week, uh, before the box score, we'll be back. Nate and BK uh, will give you a football pod every two weeks. Uh, Matt and I will give you a basketball pod every two weeks. Uh, so uh, we are in off season mode now, Matt. Uh, we made it. We made it. <laughs> it was, it was a brutal, brutal, uh, really like twelve months of, of uh, getting through all this. But but we did, and uh, I get my my second COVID shot here in in ten days. I get my, I get my first one on Friday. Uh, it it'll be a glorious day. Uh, I'm gonna be fully vaccinated. I'm gonna be a a, a vaccinated man. It's good. We did. We're gonna let you back out in the wild. We need your shots. Can't let you go to those breweries and those fine uh, tapas restaurants without your full vaccinations. Don't want to let you out into the polite society without them. I honestly, I cannot, I cannot wait to go out to eat. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you follow Matt on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. You can. Uh, send us any questions you may have. We may answer them in real time, or we may, we may just hold them for a pod because you know it's off season. You never you never know uh, the length of time you're going to go in between something happening uh, when you kind of reach this stage. So um, yeah, it might be a few weeks, might be six, might be eight before we we have any more new basketball news. But uh, we'll be there. Yep, right, yep, yep. We will. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you.